got up very early this morning and said, oh God, we have to redo this message. Uh, but I believe this is God's word for us this morning as we consider and contemplate Christmas uh, and pause about what is this all about and what does it mean for us to consider what it means to follow Jesus, to call ourselves Christians if you call yourself a Christian. And what does it mean if you're thinking about becoming a Christian and say, this is what I'm signing up for. And we've been in a series in the book of Revelation, so I'd actually like to take a few verses that we dealt with last week, which I didn't have time to go into, and pull them out and expound on the theme of what does it mean to follow the slaughtered Lamb of God? What does it mean to follow the slaughtered Lamb of God in our culture uh, in the 21st century here in the United States? So let's pray that uh, God will speak to us and touch us and meet us uh, amidst all the craziness going on out those doors, all right, on Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do want to ponder, to pause, and to stop amidst the flurry of activity going on around us and consider you and what Christmas is all about. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and our hearts and our minds to be able to absorb the wonder and the glory and the majesty of the Incarnation, of the things that we know intellectually that God today you might... Uh, in a fresh way, bring them home to us by the Holy Spirit. You might grow us and mature us and speak to us. And blessings might be poured out in this room that when we go out in the next couple of days, we might bear witness to what is true in the midst of our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, there you have the Bible's view of history, in a sense. And, and uh, you'll notice when we talk about the God, the Lord God Almighty or the Alpha and the Omega, that uh, God is the creator of all the universe. He's the beginning, but he's also the end. And that's why those scriptures of Lord God Almighty means in, in Hebrew, it's that God's got everything in a grip. And he is the Alpha. He is the very beginning. And he sustains it. He's the origin, and he carries it. Uh, and so that the, that the, uh, it was God's decision in the very beginning, a creation, to create. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about God on his throne. In Revelation 4, verse 11, that uh, they, they praised God for He says, You're worthy because you have created all things. And by your will or by your pleasure, they were created. And so, so God, in his, in his sovereignty, it was His decision to create the universe and create us and create the world as we know it. And one of His decisions from creation was to give us human freedom to choose Him or not to choose Him. And that we could make choices for God or choices against God. And so you'll notice the line after creation is kind of squiggly. It's turbulent. And what did I do with my pointer? Oh, I don't know. But you'll notice the turbulent line. And uh, that is the history of the human race since uh, creation, once sin entered the world. Uh, but God's not helpless as we make decisions for and against God. And the world's you know, full of trial and suffering and difficulty. That's that turbulent line there. But that the greatest event in human history, everything converges at this moment when God chooses to become a human being and we have the incarnation of Jesus and he becomes one of us he enters human history in that red arrow and he takes on our humanity he becomes sin and he lives a perfect life and he dies as our substitute and he disarms or defeats sin and death and the devil and tragedy 
and he substitutes himself on our behalf and he rises from the dead. And so even once he's entered history, the line continues turbulent. And now God's working on his purpose. But there is a boundary and there is an end of time that will come and that because God is on the throne and God's in complete control. But as we think about Christmas Eve in a couple of nights, and Christmas, and it's amazing because in our culture it's less and less of God, we are lifting up the fact that the decisive event in human history is what we are celebrating now. That God entered history in the person of Jesus. And that is the defining historical moment which defines the rest of history and God's working out a plan. But the God, we have a choice on what we're going to do with that. And God, again, preserves our human freedom that we can choose for God or against God, to hear God or not to hear God, to follow Him or not. And that's why there's the possibility of hell because God does not force Himself on anybody. And those who choose to say, I don't want anything to do with God, the Lord will give them, in the end, their choice. He will not force anyone to love Him back. As much as He will, has done and gone to enormous lengths to show His love and demonstrate His love towards humanity, He doesn't force Himself on anyone. All right, now, Revelation 5, verse 4, 5, and 6. Go back, go back, Michael, go back. Because when he comes, the question is, when he invades human history, how does he come? And I want you to have this image here we're going to read about in uh, verse 6, which is really the theme, uh, one of the themes of Revelation. Remember last week in chapter 5, there's a throne in heaven, and God, the creator of the universe, has got in his hand a scroll upon which is written, all of what's going to happen in history, it's the story of your life and my life in history and what God's going to do. And there's no one worthy to take the scroll from God the Father and open it until, and so John is found weeping as he sees the scroll and he's longing for God to make sense of the craziness of history. And then in verse 5, it says, chapter 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Then I saw a lamb. That's the phrase I want you to learn. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. That's the phrase I want to focus on this morning. A lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And the Greek word there, for what John sees, he sees not a, even a sheep, and there's a word for big sheep, and there's a word for lambs, and a word for little lambs. He takes the word for little lambs, and he sees a little lamb standing there with his throat cut, looking as if he's been slain, bloody mess. And it's, it's a word of humiliation. Now, it's interesting because this lion has triumphed, but the lion is going to really show up at the end of time. But he comes as a little lamb, and it's, that is the way he reigns in heaven. And uh, it's this humiliation of God, this little sheep that nobody expected when he came to earth. And that's why so many missed him. But now, this lamb image is a rich one, as many of you know, that throughout Israel, for their sins and their rebellions, they would sacrifice a lamb. And the blood would be shed, the throat would be cut of the lamb, blood would be shed, and that blood would be the substitute for the worshiper or person like you and I coming and say, God, I deserve to die. My blood deserves to be shed for my sins, but the substitute is this lamb, perfect without blemish, that is going to be offered in my place. And that Passover lamb image is what's used here in chapter 5, verse 5, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He came willingly, without spot or blemish, 
and he chose to sacrifice himself to shed his blood to be slain so that we could live. Now, how many of you have ever seen a lamb, a little lamb, that's been slain? Now, my neighbor, every year, buys, goes to the Bronx. I don't know where he goes, but he buys a lamb, a whole lamb, okay? And he chops, he has it cut in three pieces, one for me, one for my neighbor on the other side, and one for the guy across the street. And we, this year, we got the back. And so we went over. I didn't go. I couldn't go. My stomach. I went last year. And we got the hind, you know, the two legs and the back of the little lamb. And um, it's not a really pretty sight. And I asked my wife when she went, I said, was it frozen? She says, no, it was not frozen. And uh, plus there's no room in the freezer for those legs. And uh, we weren't going to figure out how to cut it. And so it, it, it's really not a pretty sight. I couldn't imagine bringing it and showing my eight-year-old, you know, our Christmas meal. Because I'm used to going to butchers, you know. I mean, I like the butchers clean it up. And then we eat our meat. I'll tell you, one way to get to be a vegetarian, you watch a few of these, you know. But that's the image here, is that it's a lamb that's been slain. This is not a pretty image that John sees on the throne. It's a word there, a, a, a lamb that's been slaughtered. That's a bloody mess. And it's like, this is offensive. It's like, oh, I, don't, I don't like this. And that's when John the Baptist, if you remember, at the end of his life, when he's about to have his head cut off, he says, he, he's confused. He goes, this, this, is, this the, is this the lion I was looking for? Is this the Messiah that's going to destroy all evil because uh, I'm about to get killed here. He's about to have his head cut off. And the Bible says that he's offended by the Lamb of God that this is the way the Messiah came. Just like many of us, as you'll see in a few moments, we're offended too that God would come like this. And that's what Christmas is all about. But, you know, I wouldn't mind if he came as a lion initially because, I mean, a lion I like. You know, they roar. They demand respect. You don't mess around with a lion. They'll chew you up and spit you out. People are afraid of lions. I like that. My, my Messiah, my God is a lion. Watch out. But that's not what he sees here. He sees a lamb at the throne looking as if it's been slain. And uh, again, when you think of you know, earthly countries, when they look for a symbol of power, they, they pick a beast or a bird of prey. You know, for, Russia is a bear. Great Britain got the lion. Okay. United States is an eagle. Okay. And France, a tiger. And, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, it's like I, I saw for the first time this past week a Humvee. I've seen pictures and I heard about them uh, on the streets of Queens, on a narrow street. I mean, a two-way street, a Humvee. You've got to see these things. It's like a tank. And I said, what is this tank doing in Queens? And I realized this person is, and you better believe I got out of the way. I pulled in the driveway. I said, oh, this is not the place to be. It's power. I mean, this thing will knock you down. Now, I mean, you understand the incarnation? I mean, God's going to come just like a lamb, like it just a little lamb on, on top of that. It's not what we're looking for, and it's not what we want to follow either. And so when we think about, you know, who's, who's got power in our society, power resides in people who are physically strong or, or are wealthy, have a lot of material possessions, or people who are brilliant artistically or brilliant intellectually, or someone who's a celebrity who's very famous or extremely beautiful and handsome, but the symbol of, of the kingdom of God and, and the image that we're to hang on to is 
we are following a slaughtered lamb. A slaughtered little lamb. That's what Christmas, that's what we're lifting up at Christmas. And, and that Jesus, when he came to earth, when God became a human being, uh, he came to a small village of 100 to 300 people called Bethlehem. I mean, how many of you come from, you know, a small little town of 100 to 300 people? I mean, a couple of us, you know. And usually, generally, we tend to be embarrassed. Oh, I come from, you know, 100 people, you know. And, and he came, he was born in, in, a, in a small cave, really. Uh, mangers were really, the uh, stables were kind of like caves in those days, and very dark and smelly where the animals were. And, and he, this is the Messiah, weak and, and so small, and, and that the eternal Word of God, the eternal God, became a human being, became a baby, and chose to be born in this little place as a child. And, and when John, the apostle, writes, we have seen his glory, his, that, that God assumed flesh, and we've seen him. And that this, this, is, this is something that is unfathomable, it's incomprehensible, that the baby born at Bethlehem, this moment in history, that God became a man, a human being, the Almighty of the universe did not come as an invincible angel. He did not come as a commanding general. He did not come as a great intellect in Athens. He did not come as a king or a president or a Caesar he, or a movie star or Olympic athlete. But he came, I like what Max Lucado, he writes it beautifully, he goes, God, quote, became an oppressed Jew. He appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do, more than to do no more than lie there, wiggle and make noises needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other human baby. Unimaginably, the maker of all things shrank down, 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 so small as to become a single fertilized egg. An egg that would enlarge into a fetus inside a nervous teenager. The God who roared who would move galaxies with a word, this God emerged in Palestine as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food. The God who knows neither time nor space entered time and space. Eternity entered time at a moment in history. Fragile, unknown, obscure, helpless, and dependent. Now the more you think about it, and it's very tough to think about it, in the holidays, because we're all so busy, the more you think about it and ponder it, the more staggering it becomes. In fact, imagine this, 10,000 years from now, it will still be awesome. We will still be pondering this, that God became a man and a baby, and it will be awesome and drive us to worship. No one ever imagined that God would come to be born of a teenager who wasn't even married, formally yet, and it would subject her to stoning. No one imagined that he would come into this little inn or little cave to a fourth-class citizen. No one ever imagined he'd come from Nazareth and Galilee, this backward provincial community. No one ever imagined he'd be a refugee in Africa running for his life as a baby. No one ever imagined that when he first went to the temple at eight days, only two people would recognize who he was. Everybody else just kept doing their business as if he wasn't even there. No one ever dreamed that God would visit the planet this way. And thus so many, many missed him. 
But God arranged earthly circumstances in such a way that he would come without any earthly power, without justice, without any sense of privilege or wealth. But he came this way. Now, here's the key theme. By dying, he would be victorious. And that by death, he would bring life. And so you've got, in the rest of the chapter of Revelation, if you look at it for just a moment, what happens once he dies, he's slain, and then you've got, beginning of verse 9, this incredible scene of phenomenal worship. It releases such life. Michael, do we have the first thing up? Just the first one up? No, 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 go back, go back. That um, it says, you are worthy to take the scroll, and it says there, as a result of his death, a, a, a nation is born of God's people, are purchased, and priests to serve our God that will reign. And then all of creation, it says, an, in, an uncountable number of angels, without number, worship, encircling this lamb who was slain, and say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And every creature in heaven, on earth and under the earth and in the sea is singing. And they get a glimpse of, of the end of history. And they will all sing to him who sits on a throne and to the Lamb who was slain. Be honor and glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And so by dying, the Lamb is victorious. And there's a great theme here. Because if you are here today, and we're going to follow the Lamb of God, understand, you see the way that line continues to be turbulent and shaky. So we live today in history where it's a mess out there. And we are in a warfare, the Bible says. A spiritual warfare with powers and principalities of the air. And the theme of Revelation is there's a beast. It's manifest through our culture, the world around us, through whom the devil and the flesh works, this beast wants to crush you, silence you, cut you off in your walk with God, cut you off from the body of Christ, and absorb you into its own self. And that you are in a warfare that's life and death. And Revelation lays out this picture. And so God's working out, out, out a plan, but you and I find ourselves in a warfare. So you find, for example, Michael put the verse up in Revelation 12, 12. Once Jesus is born, it says, it defeats Satan at the cross. It says in 12.12 Revelation, the devil has gone down to you. That's us, the earth. He is filled with fury. Well, thanks a lot. I have enough problems as it is. Because he knows his time is short. Now, next verse. The devil was enraged at the woman. Again, representing the birth of Christ. And went off to make war against her offspring. Who's her offspring? Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so we find ourselves in a war, a, a real spiritual warfare, to keep you from obeying God's commandments and being a witness to being a testimony to what is true, to silence you and shut you up. And that's where we are. Now, now this book, the book of Revelation says, how do I be victorious then? Because it's about... Jesus was victorious by his death. And how can you and I be victorious in this warfare? Now, here's what you got to catch. This is the message of Christmas. I want you to meditate and ponder. It's very profound. It's very deep. You're going to have to think about it when you leave here. And uh, because that's what this book is about. It says, you will conquer and be victorious by dying. Michael, why don't you put it up? To him who conquers, by dying, Jesus was victorious. Now, in the same way, by dying... We are victorious. Now, I know that's not the way you want to be victorious. But you're following the slaughtered Lamb of God. 
And by dying, Jesus was victorious. And one of the themes, and this will get expounded later as we move in the book of Revelation, that how is the kingdom of God advanced on earth? How is God's purposes fulfilled? How is God's blessing disseminated to the world in which we live? It, and, and in Revelation, you'll see a lot of judgment as, as the weeks go by. But it's not judgment that causes people who don't know God to repent and turn to him. What causes the kingdom to advance, what causes people to respond and go to God, is the suffering and the dying of God's people. That what brings life and blessing to the people in the world is the, is the death and suffering of God's people. Well, that's a great Christmas message, isn't it? Now, what I want to do the rest of the message is, is, is unpack that for us. I want to apply it because that's what this book is all about. And it'll say, come out, in Revelation 18, come out, my people, from the beast and die so that you can live. Because the way to life is to die. He who holds on to his life, Jesus says, loses it. He who loses his life will find it. And that the way to resurrection life is to die, just like it was for Jesus. No, let's talk about this, all right? Now, by dying, we're victorious. Because when I think about... I want, I want my kids to be victorious in life, whatever that means to you. I want them to be victorious in life. I say, okay, well, if I can just make enough money, I'll be victorious in life. Then I'll have some control. Or if I can just have enough, a house, some possessions, I'll be victorious in life. Or if I just get enough education under my belt and my kid's belt, we'll be victorious in life. If I can just get my green card, if I can just get my papers in this country, my citizenship, I know I'll be victorious in life. Or if I can just get that home I've been longing for, my, again, whatever possessions it might be for you. And I think we dream of that for our children. We want our children to be victorious, and that's what we're dreaming of, these, these earthly things for them. But I want you to catch, revelation is a perspective from heaven. It's a whole other way to look at life. And God said, I want you to see it from the throne room. And what I want to tell you is that we are victorious by dying. And we are a community of people that are called to die. Now, how would you like to become a Christian today? Would you like to receive Jesus, the free grace of God? Come, as Bonhoeffer said, come and die. The gospel is come and die. And you'll live. All right, I'm going to give you, I'm just going to try to, to break this down into four applications. I really had about 15. But I've got four I want to develop here. And I want you to think about what is it going to mean for, to die for you? Because you're following the slaughtered Lamb of God. That's our Lord, sitting on the throne. All right, number one. We die by bearing witness to what is true. Now, we've talked about that a little bit before. Remember, the word witness in the, in the book of Revelation means to give verbal, verbally speak what is true about Jesus. And actually became, the word means to suffer, to die, uh, eventually became to mean that. But it's bearing witness. Now, again, the image of this warfare is there's a beast that wants to shut you up and silence you and crush you through any means possible, whether it's prosperity, whether it's persecution, whether it's slander, whether it's uh, immorality, whatever, pornography, something to get its hooks in you and shut you up. But it is a death to bear witness to what is true because there's always, in Revelation, an opposition. There is always friction if you will speak to what is true. I'm not talking about being obnoxious, all right? I'm talking about bearing witness to what is true. So, backed, hopefully backed by a life that is, you know, has credibility to it. 
and the Bible assumes that. And so that's why it says in Revelation 12:11 that they overcame him, they conquered him by the by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their they, and the blood of the lamb, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, this is Christ's celebration this week. I know it's hard to believe, isn't it? Because our culture, more and more, it's a holiday. You'll notice the terminology, the words are different now. It's holidays. Uh, it's not Christmas because it's got Christ in it. They don't want it Christ and it's too not politically correct. But this is Christ. This, this, fortunately, we live in a culture and a world which recognizes this is Christ's birthday or the day chosen for Christ's birthday. And we don't know exactly the day he was born, but it's irrelevant. But we, we pause and we celebrate the most important event in human history. And this is not about the economy. This is not about my kids. This is not about my family. This is about the most decisive event in history. And you and I are to bear witness to that. We are the ones to remind the culture around us, our family, our friends, that this is what, this, this is what Christmas is about. And so as you know, to even the thought of going out for Christmas Eve is like, who's got time? You understand, who's got time? This is his day. This is about him. And so all the things that we do are only meant to be signposts pointing to him. So we, we exchange gifts. Nelson's going to give me a great gift later. And I trust a costly one. But as we exchange gifts, they are simply signposts or pointers to what Christmas is about, which is the gift God gave us in dying for us. And so those gifts are pointers. Or we, or we celebrate a meal together as families or with friends and apartments, and we're going to have some food and enjoy it. But that's, that's, that's only pointing to the feast of a messianic banquet that we will someday have at the end. Or when we sing a song, and it's good, but it's not enough, because we're going to sing, really sing, when we see him face to face. Or, or even a, 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 with a family, but we'll really be a family with all of our family from every tongue and nature and culture someday. But it's only a signpost. Otherwise, you're going to be disappointed in your holiday. It was never meant to fully satisfy you. It was meant just to be a taste of eternity and where you're going. And so we're witnessing to what is true because so many people are so discouraged the day after Christmas because it wasn't what they hoped for because your hope was never meant to be in that holiday. It was meant to be in Him. And so we die and bear witness in the midst of people saying... Either my kids, this is everything, which it's not. But we die. You know, many of us, when I was at my wife and I, when we were meeting we were last week with some folks in our neighborhood, and they were saying some things that were blasphemous, you know, just horrible. And it was like, oh, you know. And, and you know, we can shut our mouths because I don't like to make waves just like you don't. And I want to be a silent witness for Jesus. Or when someone makes a racist remark, or a, 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 an ethnic slur, uh, you know, the temptation is so great to say nothing. Because I, I don't want I don't people not to like me. It's the holidays, you know. But to die is that I'm dying to people's approval. Now, again, I'm not, please don't be obnoxious. But it's, I, we do respect people's differences, and that's okay. People have choices to make. But that we're not afraid, and we, we, uh, we do bear witness to what is true. And it's a death because you will never be the most popular person at the party. You know, I think of the whole Iraq, you know, potential war coming up. And I think it's a great case in point because 
When I hear sometimes people talk about the excitement of going to war in Iraq, I get very nervous because those are human beings in Iraq, made in the image of God. Those are children and women and real men caught up in the middle of all this, in that revolutionary guard. These aren't demons. And that war is a, a, a colossal tragedy. And so I'm making a statement about pro-con of the war and all that. My point is that when we speak of war, that it grieves us. And we pray that God would spare that from happening because of the horror. And we bear witness to what is true. These are people in Iraq. We have brothers and sisters in Iraq. And our loyalty transcends our nation. And our loyalty transcends our cultures. And I love, I love the United States of America. It's a great country. It has its flaws like every, every country. But it's a great country. But my first loyalty is to the kingdom of God. And it, it transcends culture, race, ethnicity, and gender. And we've got to always bear witness to what is true as we lift up and say, nations are going to come and go, but our loyalty ultimately is to the kingdom of God. And uh, we bear witness. So, number two. Let me go on here. We die by fighting for what is right. Let me try to illustrate this. I was with a friend uh, this past week whom I've known for about maybe 12, 13 years now. And uh, he, he called me, he wanted to get together. Uh, he's from out of state because he had had really a, a, a revelation. His whole life had been changed. He's been a Christian for a while. And uh, his wife, over the years, 20 years of marriage, had become uh, emotionally unavailable. Uh, I, I mentally, some things had happened mentally for her that she was unable to give anything back to him anymore in terms of love. And she'd come from a very abusive background growing up. And these things had really kicked in as, as the years went on in their marriage to the point where uh, she was unable to raise the children who were now, at this point, teenagers and pretty much out of control. And uh, he, he was getting zero out of the marriage and struggling with all kinds of external temptations. And again, a believer, uh, he's actually CEO of a company, and uh, was wondering, he was in Europe on a business trip, at this point realizing this whole marriage is about to collapse. And church-going people, you know. And, and, uh, and then God met him in a variety of ways, spoke to him. And God told him to fight for his marriage. And God told him to die for his wife. And so he pulls out his day timer for me. And he shows me his, you know, you have a to-do list every day? And this guy has a, is very prophetic. He's got a quite a, you know, he really, actually, he also came to the grips realizing that his relationship with his spouse was, because was, she wasn't interested so much in following Christ, that he was also throwing Christ out the window. He realized the whole thing was going down because he was following his spouse even more than Christ at this point, and he recognized where the whole thing was going. And uh, he showed me his daytime, right? and on it is, was every day for the last six months is, is loving her. So, is, you know, buy her flowers, uh, take her on dates. So he'd, he'd go in the house sometimes, for example, and she'd be in the middle of the living room floor, crunched over crying just by herself. And, the, and he would just go, he says, I just go there, and I just hug her. And I speak words of blessing over her. I tell her how much I love her. I tell how committed I am, how beautiful person she is, and I have been speaking blessing and life over here for the last six months. Every day. And he goes, it's been a death, but let me tell you something. He goes, my whole life has been transformed. And I told God initially, I said, you're asking me to do something I can't do. I don't want to do it. And God says, I have placed inside of you my life. You are able to die for her. And if you will die for her, not only is she going to come to life, you're going to come to life. And he says, over six months, she is slowly becoming a different person. Because no one's ever loved her her whole life. And he goes, what I fell into, I was just simply a repeat of her parental family of origin abusing her all over again. 
and being angry all the time. And God showed me I was all mixed up. And I, of course, at this point, I've been thinking about this text. I'm saying, he's dying by fighting for the kingdom of God to come in his spouse. And it's bloody. But, friends, his children don't know what's going on. It's like, Dad, what happened to you? I mean, oh, my gosh. You know, kissing her and slobbering. Oh, my, you know. And he, he's got 120 employees under him at work. He says, they don't know what's happened to me. And he goes, my counselor I've been seeing, he says he's never seen anything like this in his life. And he says, but it came out of this decision to die for her. Which in 20 years of marriage, I had never committed myself to do. It was always, she dies for me, then I'll think about it for her. <laughs> now, for you, it may be your spouse. For you, it may be your parents. For you, it may be some friends. It may be some, I don't know, the church. But Jesus is alive. And I love when he says, he says, I asked God, I said, God, I, I can't keep this up. And the Lord said to me, I'm in you. You have what it takes to be kind and generous and to love unconditionally because it's my life flowing through you. And I'm telling you, there's life all over this guy. I've never seen him in 12 years so alive and so full of joy. In fact, he said to me, Pete, I, I realize now why there's such a lack of joy in our churches. Because nobody wants to die. Because the way to joy and life is death. It's the same way Jesus came. The resurrection glory was through the cross. And we're following a slaughtered lamb. Now, related to that is the next one. We die by waiting for God. I hate waiting for God. I hate it. Because when you wait for God to do something, whether it's, you know, maybe you're single and you're waiting for God, bring Mr. or Mrs. Wright, you know, or, or you've got some dreams or hopes that they, be, they become a reality and you're just waiting. Or you're waiting for some prayer, you've been praying, God answer it, and it's not answered. Or you're praying for some change in some people around you, or you're praying for some healing, or praying for healing from betrayal or disappointment, and you're like, oh God, where is it, you know? And, 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 but, and you're like, ah! But it's a death to wait, because what you're dying to is the fact that you're not in control. And the great news is this, God is always acting at the right time. Always. He acts at the right time. But it is a death because that means you're not in control. You're not God. You don't know the best timetable, but God always acts on time. Never, I'll tell you one thing, it's not my time. And we live in a culture, I like you, I finish people's sentences. Like, speed up. <laughs> and I like you, when no one's looking, drives like a maniac. <laughs> and I like you will kick a wall when the lines are long at the grocery store. But waiting kills your flesh. And that's why we hate it. It's a death to wait. And maybe God has you waiting on some things. And you're praying, you're being faithful, you're doing everything you can. But you know that unless God resurrects it, it's not going to happen. I mean, Abraham waited 25 years. That's a long time. The Israelites were in slavery crying out for 400. Now, I did the math on that one. That's the year 1602. That's a long time. They're groaning and crying out to God. I don't even know what to do about that. When people in Revelation, some were dying for their faith. And I can see them saying, you know, God, why should I die? I mean, if I was living at a different point in history, I wouldn't have to die. My family's going to be messed up, or we've got to run from our town. And, but it's waiting on God, that God's going to put it all right at just the right time. I don't know what you're walking through in your situation, but to be faithful and to bear witness to God, to fight for what's true, 
and to wait, you better know God's on the throne. But the beautiful thing is, when we wait on God, something happens. You know what gets released? Life. We, that's when we learn, oh my goodness, God really is good. Now we think when we're waiting, God's bad. But as the time passes, you always know God is good. And then you recognize this, God had to kill all of that because he was bringing me to someplace new. And that whole waiting time was the fact that he was changing some things in me and in my life because he wanted to bring me somewhere so much better in a place of life and revelation what he wanted to do in me. And that waiting was absolutely critical that I die to running life. But for some of us, we're so in control. God wants to kill you, have you die so there can be his life flowing through you. But it's, it's a dying to have to wait. It is a dying. All right, let me close this last one here. We die by choosing, finally, I think another, again, there's more I could add to this. We die by choosing brokenness and vulnerability. It's a choice, and it's a death. Because this is not very popular in our culture. Now, I'll put on, on the overhead the next slide. Here's the choices we have. You can be a tiger or a bear, which really our culture reinforces, or you can be a broken lamb. Now, it's a choice. The broken lamb is the choice that to die. The tiger bear is no one's going to hurt me. And so let's put the first one up here. So, for example, you know, a tiger and a bear uh, is very guarded and protective. And, you know, I know many of you, and, and if, we, if, you, if, you're, uh, long, if you're alive a long time, the older you are, the more you've been beat up by life. The more bruises and cuts you have. And so what happens is we get very guarded and defensive as we grow older because we don't want to get hurt again. And we're tigers. We're bears. And you know what? That's the culture. That's the beast out there. And if you're not a tiger and bear, people eat you up. Some other tiger or bear eats you up. So you end up sucking into the culture of the beast. But the kingdom of God, following a slaughtered lamb, is we're called to be transparent and weak. So, oh, Peter, if I'm, if I'm transparent, I'll get killed. How about that? Jesus says, I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Luke chapter 10. And yes, you will die. Yeah, it's true. Now, I'm not saying I'm being doormat. Please, don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I don't believe God's calling us to be doormats. But there is a place of weakness and transparency, which is the way of following a slaughtered lamb. Next one, is, I, I put five in here. You know, some of us, we're very offendable. Sorry, it's not really an English word. Uh, but we're very defensive. You know, we're very defensive. And we get offended very easy. We're like tigers. We, someone offends you, you take their head off like a bear. You offend a lion, you're going to pay for it. And so you're choosing to not follow a slaughtered lamb. You're following the tiger. You're following the beast. That's the way the world works. But no, the broken lambs are approachable and open. They're tender and they're soft. And you know it. Next one is, you know, tigers and bears are very good at focusing on the flaws of other people. And then they kill them. They inflict death. But broken lambs are not so focused on everybody else's problems. People who follow the slaughtered lamb focus on their own flaws, repent of their own sins and wreckedness and brokenness and, and let God deal with everybody else. They love people and bring correction, but it's in a whole different spirit because their focus is on themselves. Folks who choose to be tigers and lambs, are they, they have a lot of opinions. Bears and lions have a lot of opinions about where they want to go, what they want to do, and what's right and what's wrong. Broken lambs have a lot less opinions. They're kind of quick to listen and follow. Not that we don't have opinions and convictions, but uh, some of us are highly opinionated. 
But the choice to follow the slaughtered lamb is a choice of brokenness and, and listening. And then finally, this, I don't know if this came out right. Oh, thanks, Michael. Tigers and bears hold grudges a lot. And they rarely say, I'm sorry. As someone said to me, why say it? They know I mean it. They know it's in my heart. Oh, really? I can tell. They can really tell it's in your heart. But a broken lamb lets go and holds no one in debt. But it's the way, of, the way on the right is the way of the slaughtered lamb. But this is not what you're going to learn in school. Your employer, I can trust you, is not going to be having a course in human resources on living like a broken lamb. But it's the way of the kingdom of God. And it's the opposite of the way of the beast. So, I don't know, it's tough to be broken in New York. I mean, we're fighting to be first in line. We're fighting to get on the highway. We're fighting on a subway train with people cramming in. We're fighting as parents with our kids and trying to get them to walk with God. Some of you work with people you can't stand. You're upset with people who never say thank you. And some of you are already getting upset with folks who did not send you a birthday card. <laughs> okay? But yet God calls you to a brokenness and a vulnerability and a broken lamb thing. Because the victory is I've got nothing to prove to anybody. My security, my identity, my worth is not in what people think. It's not in what I own. It's in Jesus and his love for me. And I know how... But this is the way, says Jesus, this on the right side leads to life. The other way leads to death. You see, resurrection, life, and power flows out of following the way of death. Now, Michael, put the four things up there again. Now, remember, Jesus conquered by dying. Now, the incarnation, just Jesus leaving heaven, was a death. So, but then he had to die many, many times beyond that. He had 12 stubborn disciples. He had Judas. I mean, then ultimately he had the cross. So, life is a series of dyings. And I don't know where you are right now in your life, but God's inviting all of you in this room to come and die. And my question for you this morning is, what does it mean for you to choose death at this season of your life? What does it mean for you to choose to follow the slaughtered Lamb of God and choose to die? Because you don't have to die. You can hold on to your life. Jesus, if you hold on to your life and you don't want to die, you will eventually lose it. But if you will lose your life and give me your life afresh, you'll really find it and life will flow out of you. So I want you to pause and I want you to think for a minute. And I'm going to pray for us. But I want you to apply it. I, I gave four big areas. Bearing witness. Dying is bearing witness to what is true. Some of you, you've got, you're surrounded by friends and family and neighbors perhaps that it's very difficult for you to bear witness because you want their approval so badly. It's dying to that. Fighting for what's right. Some of you are in situations in your marriages and families and finances and service to God and ministry. You've got to fight for the kingdom. He said, I don't have it. I know Jesus, if you will do, if you'll die, not only am I going to resurrect the situation, I'm going to resurrect you. And then if you'll die, some of you are dying by waiting on God. And what does it mean for you to be faithful, to remain faithful as you wait on God like Abraham? That's why he was a great man of faith. He was faithful. Even though nothing was happening and even though things got worse. And sometimes that happens. Things get Sometimes. Often things get worse when we wait. And we die by choosing brokenness and vulnerability. Maybe some of you, that's what it is today. It's a, that, that's who you feel. That's a death to be broken and vulnerable. Or say, I'm sorry, or release somebody, or say, forgive me. Let's put the verse up, Michael. And I want you to think about it. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it.